We've all heard the saying that what we pay attention to grows. But our attention, this precious, limited resource, is now itself our culture's most valuable commodity. So cluttered our minds can become in this manipulation, in this grasping, that we lose contact with our own choice. We can forget that beyond our phones lay the great expanse of everything. And remembering to listen to the world around us, we can encounter the fullness of possibility and potential and presence. In this episode, I was really delighted, stoked to talk with Jenny O'Dell, who is an artist whose work has been shown at the JC Museum, the New York Public Library, and the San Francisco Dump. She is also a writer of one of my most recent favorite books, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. It was a beautiful conversation talking to Jenny about nothing and also everything, and I hope that you really enjoy it. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You are someone who, I hope it's okay to say, you're kind of my friend in my head. So I, <laughs> I feel really glad that you said yes to the podcast and I'm excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Likewise, that's so nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not too much. We start every episode with this question um, about finding our way, essentially. And what I ask guests is to look around and kind of describe this moment. How would you tell the story of where we are? And we can be defined however you'd like to define we. It could be in the confines of this country or beyond. Um, but how would you talk about where we are right now? What do you see when you look out? Hmm. I mean, I think there's just a lot of confusion. I like an image that comes to mind pretty often is just like trying to get one's bearings. I guess that's finding your way, right? This kind of like, how do you sort of orient yourself in the world? What are your points of orientation? Like, and who are you capable of caring about? Yeah, like it feels like being underwater in a very sort of tidally active area where you're just like, I'm not even sure which way is up. I, I just something that I've observed is, you know, during the pandemic, like a lot of conversations about priorities, like people sort of trying to decide what are my priorities in life or what can I absolutely not live without or what have I been denying myself that I that I actually can't live without. It's like always like trying to draw a circle or something like around what it is that you can relate to, which is like always an ongoing project anyway, but it feels kind of especially dire to me right now. And I'm also just, that's me, I'm projecting. I, I don't actually know how widespread that is, but it just does seem like there's this kind of effort to orient towards something. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it has me thinking about your book a lot because I one of the things, I mean, I got a lot out of your book, but one of the things I really took from it was what you're saying here. How do we value the things in our lives? What is important to us? How do we prioritize? How do we let some things fade and some things come forward? It felt so much at the heart of your book. So when you say that that's the moment, it very much feels resonant with what I took away from how to do nothing. Yeah. And I, I should say also, I feel like that's a natural sort of response to a crisis, right? Like any kind of crisis will make you question things that maybe you hadn't questioned for a long time or make you have to widen your your frame of questioning. I don't know. I also am sort of obsessed with like how we, I don't think we ever even really decide like how we start to take things for granted, like whether that's things or people in our lives or just like 
you know, ideas. Like I've been thinking a lot lately about like, why do I, why do I believe something? Do I believe it because I grew up here and I went to art school? Or do I actually, you know, like, have I actually examined that? And so I think it can be really scary and destabilizing to have to question things that you took for granted. But it's also like, that's how those things become real to you. And I'd obviously rather have that. It feels like things are crumbling around us. Some of the things that we've trusted in, institutions we've trusted in, and I'm using we very broadly because I can't say that all these institutions I've trusted in, but watching things crumble and fail and not meet our needs in real time, it, it really feels like a lot of trust and meaning almost is up for grabs in this moment. And that could create that kind of disorientation that could lead to a lot of fear and paranoia. And I think there may be another path. What I take from a lot of your work is that we could be infusing meaning in places that make sense to our lives. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Because <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I just finished the draft of my book that's coming out next year, which I can't say too much about. But I will say, it's very much me trying to I think I call it my panoramic assault on nihilism at one point, <laughs> you know, because it's like one reaction to being totally disoriented and, and having the meaning sort of drain out of things is to just say, like, everything's meaningless and like, I'm going to get mine. That's sort of it. And when I was writing, it, I was sort of like tortured by how almost like seductive that is to want to draw your circle really small and just say, like, I, I have this one life and I'm just going to kind of hunker down and give up on the rest. It's like, I get it. If you're tired... I understand that. I also like feel like I can't live without thinking that there's a different way that like just because these things have been destabilized doesn't mean you couldn't find the energy to try to build something else or try to imagine something else or the other the something else might be like a thread from the past that didn't really get picked up or got forgotten. So maybe it's not necessarily like new or you didn't come up with it out of the blue. It's like if you kind of go digging, you might find something that's, you know, very relevant to the present. It's like survival instructions. So I mean, I feel like that's what I, I find whenever I kind of do historical research. So that's that's like very much like sort of top of mind. And I, I mean, I think it was probably also motivating how to do nothing. But it's like I write about these things not because like I sort of abstractly think they're interesting. Like I write about them because like the question is killing me. <laughs> like I need to write about it. Well, I feel really excited about that book, but I won't ask you much more about it. But I will tell you that, you know, I came across How to Do Nothing because I was going on a solo retreat where I just slept for days. <laughs> but I... That's um, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was necessary. But I was in the airport and your book was there. I saw the title How to Do Nothing and that's the first part I saw. And I thought, this book could go in two directions. But then I saw... The rest of the title, which is Resisting the Attention Economy, and I picked it up and it felt it, it felt like it was just full of questions and journeys and I bought it and I had brought another book in my bag to read on my time away, but I couldn't put your book down. I spent the whole weekend with your book, <laughs> thumbing through it and going over it and talking to you <laughs> about it. And I love that I, I got it on a retreat, that it, it came at that time too. And a couple of things I just want to say about your book is that I could really feel your attention in the book, that there was a kind of thoughtfulness and a weaving of stories 
of all the kind of found items in the Bay Area, which I want to talk to you about. But it was, I don't want to say dense in the sense of not able to read it, but it was dense with noticings and I could feel your attention. I wonder if you can talk about, you know, this title, How to Do Nothing. Just what do you see as the, almost the fullness, because the book felt so full. What's the fullness or the potential of this nothing space that you talk about in your book? Mm, that's a that's a really good question. I can maybe answer that by saying that right before this, I went on I went on a really short walk and I noticed this area like basically on the side of the sidewalk that was extremely weedy. Like it had so many weeds, all different kinds, and they were just like really. I think like no one's living in that house right now, so it's just like productive, right, of weeds. Um, and <laughs> I was just kind of like marveling at them. And it was reminding me of the thing that I mentioned at the very end of the book, Masanobu Fukuoka, who was the Japanese farmer who did do nothing farming and how he was inspired by an empty, quote unquote, empty lot full of weeds and how productive they were. And as I I think I mentioned in the book, like he has such a good sense of humor. I mean, that whole book is just him kind of like winking and being like, I didn't do anything, but I have everything. (laughs) Like my, my method is, you know, very productive, even though I did so much less what we would consider work, less labor, less inputs. That's kind of how I think of it. And I mean, the title, How to Do Nothing, is supposed to be funny. I mean, I don't know how much that humor translated because I think some folks are like, I really want to know how to do nothing. Like, And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, this isn't actually about that. But it's more that sort of like the empty lot that is actually full of of everything. It's It's full. And, and to sort of notice in the first place that it's producing anything, one has to be looking for that or open to the idea that the, the empty lot is full. And so I think maybe like the fullness and like the amount of stuff that I tried to cram into that book is like, those are all the things that I saw when I allowed myself to sit back and what floods in when you stop trying to... I don't even know how to describe it, like impose your sort of grid on what you're perceiving. Like, I cannot tell you how many things in that book were not supposed to be there. Not only were not supposed to be there, some of them are things that like I actually got dragged away from working on the book by someone who was like, you actually really need to take a break um, and <laughs> do something unrelated. And then I would be like a movie or something and I'd be like, wow, oh my God, this is exactly, you know, <laughs> like so relevant. And And I think like on a smaller scale, like the experience that I had in the Rose Garden that I talk about, it's kind of follows that model, which is, it's not a huge or spectacular garden. It's in sort of an urban area. And yet it is very dense, kind of in the same way you described with life. And if you go there and sit for even 10 minutes, and just sit. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a gardener there once about how at some point, he just chose a very small patch of the garden and tried to count all of the things that were living in it. Like if I just am quiet enough and observant enough, I will very quickly discover that there is so, so, so much here. And in my experience, like I actually have this problem with like, I kind of quote too much, but it's because I feel like the things that I find are so much better than anything I could ever come up with. Like, you know, when you're a kid and someone comes over and you want to like show them your rock collection, like I'm still that person. So yeah. (laughs) I love that. And I love that um, when I was reading your book, I was staying at this place where I slept for four days. And 
I was reading your book and then I would put it down when I felt compelled to and I was sitting by a pond and I would watch this really intense duck drama play out. It's all kinds of things were happening with the ducks. And then there was the turtles that also had their own saga happening. And it was such a nice compliment to reading your book. I felt like I was able to look differently at my own surroundings just based on everything you shared. So Honestly, I feel so appreciative. I'm, I'm geeked <laughs> that I get to talk to you about this book. So you talk about the attention economy, and this is um, something I want to get into with you. But I wonder if we could just first start with what you learned about attention and writing this book. Yeah, I think what I was sort of trying to argue was at the time that I wrote the book was that there are basically different forms of attention or like sort of depths. So there's like really sort of shallow attention. And then there's like deeper, slower attention, like sort of qualitative difference. I I don't know, sometimes I, I feel that way. And sometimes I feel like it's just there's just attention. And sometimes you give more of it to something and, you know, quote, unquote, shallow attention is just like you're not giving that much. But I think either way, there is a really important piece of it, which is like a decision that you make at some point to pay either more or different attention. And that's kind of the reason I spend so much time talking about these art pieces that in my description of them, essentially, like the artist is trying to do that for you. I like making work that way, but I also really like encountering work where someone else does that for me. So it's like, let me hold this frame constant for you so that you can see the sunset. You can pay more attention to the sunset because of this infrastructure that I have set up around the sunset. And then maybe, hopefully, for the rest of your life, you pay more attention to the sunset. So I feel like this happens to me over and over again. It's like, I recently became very obsessed with moss. And uh, my friend also gave me a hand lens. And so I'm in moss world right now. Like, I (laughs) live in the same place that I've lived for like seven years, but it's moss version right now. (laughs) And basically, there's like these sort of things, you know, aspects that you can intentionally focus on. And I think there's something really lovely about realizing that those are kind of infinite. You'll never be done perceiving the place that you're in, even places that seem not very interesting in a sensory way. Like I'm often still very surprised. And that's one of the reasons I just I really love the idea of and sort of people who write about like urban or not urban nature, but you know what I mean? Like the fact that you can go bird watching in downtown San Francisco or something like that. Like moss is always growing in like sidewalk cracks. So I just think it's a really nice example of that kind of decision to direct one's attention or apply your attention to something. Because otherwise, it's like you're still going to pay attention to things. But I feel like if you don't do that, then at least in my experience, and I think this is why I wrote the book was like, I was just having my attention yanked around all the time. And the whole thing just came from this intuition of like, this doesn't feel good to have this thing yanked around all the time. Like, what if I could, what if I could regain some kind of, I don't want to say control, but like have some kind of like relationship to it that feels intentional. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to ask you next, because I do what we call embodiment work or somatics work. And we talk about it some here on the podcast. But part of the reason I do that is because I have an assessment that our attention and therefore our power is fractured in a bunch of ways. And our attention to ourselves, our own sensory experience of our lives, the quality of our relationships, all of that gets kind of fractured in what I think you call or is called the attention economy. 
And that I think that there's a way to re-inhabit that space of relationship with our bodies and deeper relationship with one another. So I, when I read your book, I read it really somewhat through that lens. And you talk about listening as a kind of a bodily experience. I, I love that a lot. And I, I guess I, I wonder if you can talk about this kind of from your perspective and from your work, what you see the attention economy, well, what it is maybe I think for folks who are listening, kind of how you would describe what that is and what you feel like are the impacts then on our lives and relationships and maybe our political landscape too. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the attention economy defined a bunch of different ways. I think my working definition in the book is sort of, it's pretty strictly economic. It's like, well, maybe not strictly, but it's economic. You know, like I've seen other definitions of it where it's like everything is an attention economy because you always decide, you know, to pay different amounts of attention to things. But my mine is more sort of like people are making money off of that. Like it's more specifically that kind of a lot of really smart people working on this problem of how to capture and hold your attention for, you know, the greatest amount of time, greatest amount of engagement, and then, you know, like advertising. And so just basically anything where attention is is the currency. And so it often favors a really kind of shallow attention. So, I mean, something like I love thinking about is how you're never really supposed to look that deeply at an ad. Like Instagram ads are like the the apex of this, right? Because you're literally scrolling through, you're already looking at things really quickly and then you just see this ad, right? But if you actually like stop and look at this ad for a really long time and you start breaking it down, like why did they use that font? Why do they think that I want this? Like what world does this product presuppose? Like what desires do they think that I have that this would address? Because it's, it's often wrong, right? So you can also just kind of like revel in that. But I, I would rather it be that I don't have to look at ads, but if I do have to look at them, I'm sort of like, let me just really interrogate this ad. And like, sometimes it's really entertaining. Or like the other thing that I love to do is pretend that the ads are from a science fiction book from the past about now, <laughs> like Blade Runner. <laughs> like these are the ads in Blade Runner, but just like now. <laughs> and then everything starts to look like really weird and dystopian, which like it, a lot of those things in these ads like are. So anyway, that's just to say that like the attention economy I feel like if you're caught up in it, you that's part of the part that doesn't feel good. It's like your attention is feels just really fragmented or shallow, like you're not really spending that much attention on any one thing, but it's many, many things. And so obviously that doesn't bode well for deeper, slower forms of attention to things that are not immediately obvious or not immediately spectacular, like ideas that can't be very, very quickly grasped. I think I talked towards the end about kind of what that means for like political discussions that require a lot of nuance, just kind of like periods of reflection, like the magazine is something that's like slower than something like Twitter. That, you know, every medium has its advantages and things that it's really good for, but there is something about time there, like amount of time, amount of context. Something I was really concerned about is the role of context, like how much context matters for the supposed content. Like I kind of think there isn't content without context in a way. And so to actually sit with and kind of piece through context just takes time and it takes focus and commitment and also this like ability to sometimes sit with ambiguity like it can't be immediately resolved. I mean, I'm basically just describing like patience, but I just don't think that the attention economy encourages patience or or makes it easy. And 
I really actually wish that I had known about your work when I wrote the book because I feel like I accidentally happened upon or I was coming to something from a different angle you know where I talk about like smells and the, basically the sense that like the rose garden is like reminding me that I have a body but I feel like I didn't fully have the vocabulary to like understand why that's important or like why that works I think I was just kind of like huh it works like you know but I didn't um but it's something that like I've thought a lot more about lately and I I actually just gave a talk recently where I was revisiting the work of Pauline Oliveros who is the composer and sound artist that I mentioned in the book. And something that I didn't mention in the book is that deep listening, which is her phrase for, you know, this practice of listening inwardly and outwardly to everything that's possible to hear, no matter what, I think is the way that she puts it. It's also the name of her album, I think from 1989, where she and a bunch of other musicians were in this underground cistern in Washington State. It's huge. Like, it's like something million gallon capacity cistern. There's a photo actually of her in there, I think with an accordion. And it's basically these, these musicians who have, I think it was like a trombone and some like electronic stuff and their voices. It Okay, it had a 45 second reverberation time. That's what that's what I was so amazed by. And it's an incredible album. You know, if you can listen to it on good headphones. I, I was giving this talk and it was at California College of the Arts. And it was the first in-person lecture they'd had since the beginning of the pandemic. And it was the first in-person lecture I had given since the beginning of the pandemic. And it was in a room with incredibly high ceilings. Like, it's just a big room with a really, really good sound system. And I was like, oh, I'm going to play the end of this album in here just like selfishly because I want to hear it. But also because, you know, we could do that because we were all physically present in the room. And it was also, you know, the sound of it was going to be influenced by the shape of the room. So I feel like I wasn't fully accessing like that layer of it when I when I encountered her work, for example, that like, if you look at her work and sort of like practices that she's written out, it's very, it's incredibly embodied. And it's people responding to each other's vocalizations and the shape of the environment, like in real time. I mean, I I read your book from a place of a kind of embodied exploration and I think throughout, even the the ecological piece at the end, it's like how much we can feel ourselves allows us to have actual and authentic relationship with place around us and what's happening inside of our ecosystem. And I I think you named some really critical points. And I, I often think about embodiment as access to our lives, like beyond the political analysis of it. We get to live our lives if we can feel them. But you know, you talk about resisting the attention economy. I think there is, I think living aware of our of our sensations is a foil to this kind of reactive, commodified attention economy that I can sit with an ad and go, actually, I think this ad is kind of silly. Or actually, I don't like the color of this. But you can only really do that if you are seated somewhere inside of yourself and your own being to be able to do that level of discernment. So anyways, all that to say, I'm happy to be in conversation with you about it. And I really felt a lot of those questions in your book when I read it. You know, I think we often think of it almost as like a foregone conclusion that we will relinquish our attention (laughs) to the metaverse. (laughs) Or I, I think it's interesting that we're having this conversation on the day that Elon Musk is, you know, He's taking over Twitter. But I think sometimes we're like, well, we're that's where we're headed. That's progress. And you don't actually advocate, I don't feel like, in your book for abstinence from 
these tools and social media. But I mean, you talk about the third space or another way. And I, I guess I wonder if you can just talk about this, because I feel like I'm often looking for this path and this road around how to engage with these technologies. Yeah, right. It's it's really hard. I It sort of remains an open question for me, in part because I have to answer it all the time because I live in a world that is social media. Um, you know, like you can't, this is not an avoidable question, really. Something that I really value is like taking a reflective position towards something where that doesn't necessarily mean that you're turning your back on it. I mean, there aren't really a lot of things that you can actually turn your back on. I mean, you could maybe imagine that you could, but what if instead of this being so close to me and of, of such seeming importance that I can't get any critical distance at all? Like, what if I just tried to kind of like hold it at arm's length? I feel like that's kind of where I am right now, where it's like, it feels a little bit inseparable from this like wider question, which is also sort of impossible to answer, which is like, I want to imagine something different, but I live in the world right now. That's also kind of a big part of my my second book is like, and anyone who's trying to imagine any kind of change, right, has to deal with that. It's like money or capitalism, right? It's like we all live in this pretty like seamless fabric of it. I mean, it doesn't touch every part of your life, but a lot of it. And you're always trying to strike this balance between like, I need to make it to tomorrow, but I also want to keep my eyes set on this goal that's over here. You know, and like, how do I square these two? And so I think you can sort of interpret the social media question that way, which is like, for sure, not not everyone needs it. Some people, it's very useful for them and they do need it for their work. You can also say, you know, like, this is, this is what we have. <laughs> um, this is a means of communication that is pretty widespread and is accessible to a lot of people. And so it's, you know, there's a lot wrong with it, but it's what we have right now. And like, how do we move from how it is right now to something better and I you know like I sort of talk at the end of the book about like these like decentralized social networks but that hasn't really like panned out and some of it's kind of going in a weird direction right now and so I don't really have an answer to that in the book and so I feel like the the one thing that I feel like has been effective has been to just kind of try to drain it of its importance if that makes sense like sometimes I talk about it like it's a book on the shelf it's a book on the shelf with other books that you consult for different reasons. And sometimes you take that book and you open it and you close it and you put it back on the shelf. The problem is that the book was designed for you to never be able to close it. So you just have to get really, really good at closing it. But that's kind of like true in a way, in a wider sense of like different roles that you play in your life, right? Like I have been reading this amazing book about alienation. And one of the points that the author made was like, there's actually nothing wrong with playing different roles in your life as long as you relate to them in an authentic way and you don't like sort of over identify with one of them. I think in a similar way, you could say like, you know, if you're starting to feel that like you're tipping into that kind of almost like abusive, obsessive relationship with social media, like it's just a good practice to try to inhabit other roles, like other contexts to balance that out. You know, there's something very cerebral about you know, you're staring at a tiny little screen <laughs> and like often like you're tense and your brows are furrowed. I mean, it's so small. Like I think about this all the time, right? The phones are so small and like you have this whole visual field and then you're looking at this little rectangle and the whole world is in there. I I'm just thinking about this time. It was like years ago. I was on my laptop in my room 
and I was like really deep into some, I probably didn't even want to be reading it. And I was, I don't even know how I got there. And um, my computer is actually really old. And so it does a lot of interesting things. And um, it just turned off. <laughs> like, And I was like, oh, thank you. And I was like, oh, like, here I am. I'm in my room. I'm sitting in my chair, you know? So I'm like, okay, how can I just do that for myself? I've had that moment too. Where you're like, oh, thank you for overheating. Thank you for dying. <laughs> I wasn't going to get out. You're saying something that's really um, showing me something that there's like, you know, the orientation I have taken at times of like, I'm going to turn my back. I'm not going to, I'm going to do a social media fast. And, you know, then we have to announce it to everybody that we are no longer on social media (laughs) for this period of time. Um, But that kind of um, denial in some way of like, okay, this is a thing that is in my life that I have something invested in. It has some meaning for me. It connects me to people. It is important for the work that I'm trying to do. It's not it's not allowing us to be choiceful in how we're going to shape our relationship to this thing over the long term. And there's something about, and you were talking about looking at the ads and looking at them closely, there's a certain power in that, that it can dissolve or change shape if we're able to look at it from that arm's length that you're, you're saying. Like, I can see what it is and what it does to me, what it does to my system. I would say 75% of the time, if I spend more than 10 minutes on social media, I end up feeling bad about myself (laughs) I end up feeling insecure yeah Yeah. I know isn't that funny like I've been for the last you know year and a half I was trying to be like anti-feed so I was like I have these accounts but I I'm trying to only use them for messages and if I someone comes into my mind and I want to know what they're up to I can go to their profile but I'm not going to scroll and this was inspired by this Chrome plugin that I downloaded ages ago that makes your Facebook newsfeed go away. But actually, the result of that was that I stopped using Facebook because like, that's how Facebook keeps you on, on the site. Otherwise, there's like no real reason to be there. So I, I had been doing that for a while. And it was kind of nice because then it just sort of becomes like a messaging thing. But then, but then at that point, you can just sort of argue, well, why don't you just send someone, I don't know, a message in another way that's not on here? I mean, that's a whole thing. But recently, I... I did feel disconnected, you know, like I felt like I like I don't know what people are doing, like the sort of systems of, you know, staying connected to people in that way are very eroded. I feel like, you know, I don't it's not like I'm running into people or like we have these great communal spaces or something like that. And then on top of that, there's a pandemic. Again, this is what we have. And so I recently I was like, okay, let me scroll a little bit. And for the first like maybe two minutes, I was like, oh, it's nice to know what people are doing. But then after about 10 minutes, I was like, I feel bad. Like I was like the same what you're describing. I was like, <laughs> I feel like in the past, I would have like gone down a whole, you know, sort of path of like, why does it make me feel bad? And I would sort of like try to like really like in- intellectually analyze that. But like, I kind of don't do that anymore. I'm like, this makes me feel lonely and sad. Yeah. Yep. End of story. That's, <laughs> That's all right. I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, and it's such a game. I mean, I've had a lot of people say, oh, if you just did this, then you would get a high score, essentially, on the game. If you just posted this many times, you get a high score. And I just can't really bring myself to do more than I want to. <laughs> I'm stubborn that way. But I, I want to spend the rest of our time kind of asking you about all the stuff that filled up your book. So I used to live in the Bay. I lived in the Bay for about 
about seven years. And so there are a lot of things that I recognized when you told the stories, but there was a lot of things that I was just like, I didn't know. I used to live right down the street from that. And I had no idea that was there. And I guess I want to enter this part from the point of view of just like where we began, the kind of richness, the fullness of the day or our lives or our ecosystem when we pay attention. I, I'm curious about all the hidden treasures <laughs> that you found in the bay. I'm also curious about, I can ask this separately, but I'm, I'm curious about what the birds are doing. Oh, that's a whole... <laughs> <laughs> whole drama. I mean, I, so, you know, there's a balcony in my uh, apartment unit, but it doesn't get sun until it's like a weird seasonal sundial. It doesn't start until I think it was maybe like three weeks ago. And then I get, and then I'm always like so happy because I, because otherwise it's just freezing basically because of the way my building is situated. So this is the part of the year where I can sit on the balcony and just, you know, just in the morning, like I'll sit there and just kind of like take stock of what's going on and I like every year I'm like oh I don't realize like I hadn't realized how much I missed that and that includes bird drama I saw some major bird drama yesterday um I saw these two California towies which are like little well they're not little they're sort of medium-sized brown birds and they're very boring like (laughs) because I mean I don't think they're boring but they're just like I call them like the medium-sized sedan of birds they're just very tan 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 birds you know but there were two couples and they were fighting and i was like whoa what is going on um and then this morning i saw some chickadees possibly building a nest uh you know there's as always the crows um which are i don't know if it's the same like lineage of crows but they still come by and one of them tried to drink my coffee (laughs) um (laughs) which like i was like i don't know if they would like that. But then I do remember reading in a book about Corvids that there are these like ravens in Alaska that will pick up a coffee cup with like the hole in the plastic lid. Like they'll get their beak in there and they'll like tip it back and like drink the coffee because they like it. Whoa. And I was like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> anyway, so there's just a lot. Yeah. A lot of bird bird activity in Oakland in general. Like I kind of had that experience when I got into birding or bird watching. I don't know how many years ago that was. I didn't realize that I was like learning in an area that has so many birds in it for, you know, a lot of reasons. Like we have the shorebirds, but then there's also kind of the hills. And I didn't appreciate at the time that I was learning in a place where you're just always going to see something. And I'm very fortunate. And now I, I feel like more, more grateful for that, but they're really everywhere. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I really like trees and flora and fauna and I like to be able to identify the trees and pay attention to where the trees grow. When I read your book, I was like, oh, I actually don't pay much attention to the birds. And I've started to pay more attention. And I've noticed like around this time every year, I'll see smaller birds. And it really just depends on what birds they are, but kind of attacking larger birds like crows and sometimes birds of prey. I imagine because they're stealing eggs. Is that what you think is happening? Yeah, I think I'm not totally sure, but I think probably like they're defending their nests because they're nesting right now. And yeah, but then at the same time, actually, on the walk that I went on earlier, I saw a bunch of crows harassing like a giant hawk. So it goes up the scale, too. <laughs> mm, I yeah. see. I see <laughs> what you offer and it, the way you weave it in. It It's almost not stated directly in the book, but 
there's a fullness to what's actually happening around us, but it's almost like we miss the beauty of it all. We miss how stunning and vast the life around us really is. Totally. There's something urgent about that, too. Like, one of the most effective ways to, you know, resist the attention economy is just to remember that you only get one life. And sort of any time and attention that are spent on on this thing that's making you feel bad is, is not only making you feel bad, it's like time that you're not appreciating something that I feel like is often right in front of you. It's so easy to forget that. I mean, I'm forgetting and remembering that like all the time. And I wrote about it, but I think I wrote about it because I am like forgetting and remembering it all the time. And I think once you are in that state of actually being able to perceive things in more detail, you really don't want to go back. (laughs) I mean, of course, it's like also in a lot of ways, it's like a luxury to, I mean, you can't do that all the time, but I always feel like I'm not doing justice to the fact of being alive if I'm not appreciating things in that way or just like aware of things in that way I don't know like there's just so many little things it's sort of infinite right it's like I used to give my students this exercise where I'd have them go outside and for like 15 minutes and try to write down everything they noticed but then after a couple years I added that every time they wanted to look at their phone because I asked them not to look at their phone during the 15 minutes they would have to write that down too and they would have to write down why they wanted to look at it Yeah, so it became the sort of like noticing things about noticing. But yeah, it was always super interesting, like, because they wouldn't be sitting that far apart. I mean, they'd be sort of scattered around the building, but they're all inhabiting the same space, but they're all noticing totally different things. So, I mean, I think that's the other thing that's really nice to do is um, besides kind of like changing your own lens, like to go on a walk with someone who has a different, everybody has a different perspective. But if you went on a walk with me, like everything would be moss. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or like, you know, if you go on a walk with someone who's really into architecture or something like that, or I actually, I, I was an artist in residence at the planning department in San Francisco, like a while ago. And I went on a walk with someone who worked there. And he was just pointing out like curb cuts the whole time. <laughs> so like, now I notice curb cuts. Wow. It's amazing. Uh, before I thank you, is there anything else that you want to say on here that we haven't covered? Anything else you want to talk about? I just really appreciate your work and especially right now I feel like I'm I've just really been trying to pay more attention to my physical being um because I think I've spent my entire life like in my head <laughs> a little bit and like maybe like how to do nothing is the beginning of me kind of getting out of that but I I remember a really really long time ago I had a, a somatic psychotherapist and I didn't even know what that was she was like well recommended and I remember she would like ask me where like I felt things in my body and I that question didn't make any sense to me like (laughs) I was like I was like I was like uh it's in my head like you know but like now it's like so funny (laughs) to think about and I'm so curious like where I actually was feeling that in my body when I said that yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah it's um I feel like I spent a lot of time focusing on the body and some of the observations to me the body is its own ecosystem. There's a whole vast array of things that can happen in one's body. It was really my partner who does a lot of work around land and place and the ecosystem that I was like, oh, okay, I see how this connects me to the larger. And I'm also feeling things when I'm outdoors that I'm not even paying attention to because I get so preoccupied with everything that's happening inside (laughs) of my body. So I think we're always starting from somewhere and expanding out and um 
I'm glad our questions can overlap. Yeah, I will also just add that I think it's pretty clear in my book, like I use a lot of ecological metaphors for the self. But I I recently had this kind of, it's not an epiphany, because it's me re-realizing the same thing. But I was revisiting um, Braiding Sweetgrass, and the actual chapter about the sweetgrass, there's a part at the very end where Robin Wall Kimmerer says that she's describing like the right relationship to the grass. Like you can over harvest it and you can under harvest it either way. Right. But like if you over harvest it, it will not continue giving itself to you. Right. And I happened to read that at a time that I was getting relatively burned out from <laughs> working on, you know, just a bunch of things sort of unfortunately coincided at the same time. So I was like working a lot. And I actually took me a really long time to bounce back. And I was like, oh, like, that's the grass. Like, you know, like the part of me that motivates the work and is like curious about the world and is like driving this whole thing, like that's the grass. And if you don't treat it the right way, you can't have that relationship anymore. Like there needs to be some kind of like humility toward that ecosystem and like respect that like it does miraculous things like if you you know sort of treat it the right way or you have the right relationship to it i love that jenny thank you thank you for coming on this podcast this is a really special one for me because i ran into your book or your book summoned me and accompanied <laughs> me a really important time so um it's been lovely to talk to you and i'm, I'm really grateful likewise thank you so much it's been such a pleasure Finding Our Way is produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill, co-production and visual design by Devin Delania, and assistant editing by Miranda Luis. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast, or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain this podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Finding Our Way. Finding Our Way.